chapter, we come now to the spot where the children of Israel really come to a real turning point uh, in their uh, life together as they are now coming to the place where they're really going to, in a real personal sense, encounter the presence of God and and hear the voice of God in a way like they never have before. Uh, and ultimately, of course, we know that famous chapter, Exodus chapter 20, where there they actually receive these Ten Commandments, and then from that point, then God really begins to give to them the law. And really, the 19th chapter uh, is basically setting the stage there at Mount Sinai, where this incredible thing happens, where Moses, who was a man, the Bible tells us, who actually spoke with God and had face-to-face encounters with God that the Lord, uh, you know, in a sense, gave a special revelation to Moses as the shepherd uh, leader he had raised up for Israel. And all the way back, remember, back to the the burning bush account there where God revealed himself to Moses and spoke into Moses' life. And here's Moses, this man who has regular experiences, meets with the Lord, hears from the Lord, and, and now someone who is meeting with the Lord himself and hearing from the Lord himself is now in a sense going to seek to bring the people of God into that place whereby they might have the same experience for themselves. And, you know, I can't help but to look at this uh, whole thing and think about how that is exactly really, I believe, what the heart of God really is for each and every one of us. That as we have a genuine experience with God ourselves, and we're meeting with the Lord and God is speaking to us that out of the overflow of that, that we would have a heart to bring others around us to a place whereby they might be prepared to encounter God themselves and to really hear from God directly and personally themselves. And chapter 19 really gives us an account of those very things happening as God's preparing the people to be ready to hear his law and to receive his law as the congregation of Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1, if you draw your attention with there, it records for us that we are now in the third month, it says, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On the same day, it says, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. So they're now there at the base of Mount Sinai, this large valley underneath what is often called Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, same place when you read of them, two different terms for the same uh, mountainous area there. And they're camped now in this specific area at the base of Mount Sinai. Verse 2 says, For they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and so Israel camped there before the mountain. So we have a couple things going on here. Here they are, they're about to receive God's law. Now, I want you to take notice of something. Again, as we've talked about how many of the things we see in the Old Testament, they're intended often to be types, to be shadows, to prefigure things about the person of Jesus Christ, to reveal things to us about Christ. We know that is the heart of God, even with the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, they are historical accounts of literal things that happen. But by the same token, as God only can do, superintending over history and humanity and his word, the Spirit of God also through all these things is also revealing to us things about the person and the nature of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and our experience with him and salvation. And it's very beautiful to see, take note here, 
that the law is not given until after God has already, in a sense, allowed them to experience his deliverance and his salvation out of Egypt. It's after the deliverance and it's after the salvation experience that the law will now come into play. And, and again, I can't help but to think how God, no doubt in that, is just reminding us how God did not send Moses to them with the law and say, look, here are all God's laws. So if you obey God's laws and you fulfill God's laws, well, then he'll save you and get you out of Egypt. No, it was nothing other than what? The grace of God. It was the grace of God and it was their faith and their willingness to just embrace God's grace and the deliverance that he provided for them miraculously and supernaturally and through, in a sense, the deliverer that he raised up for them by his grace alone, Moses, who he sent to them. And that was an incredible picture for us uh, that we're not saved by the law. We're not saved by works. Our position and relationship with God has nothing to do with those kind of things. Those are all things that God gives to us, in a sense, afterwards. So now that you're saved... Now that you've been delivered, now that you've experienced my gracious deliverance and salvation by grace and by your faith and responding to the deliverer, my son, Jesus Christ, who I sent to you to get you out of slavery and get you out of bondage. He says, now in response to that, here's my word. In response to that, here's my word, live accordingly, live differently, live distinctively as the people of God. In a sense, then we embrace the word of God and, and, and the law of love, in a sense. I understand we're not under the Old Testament law, but we embrace, as James chapter 1 says, the, the perfect law of liberty. James calls the word of God. It's a law of liberty. There's almost a contradiction of terms there, law and liberty, but that's what God's word is. It, it is a liberating Law. It, it, it's something God gives to us and says, look, live like this as my people to be holy, to be distinct within my will. And it will be the most liberating experience ever. It won't bring you back into bondage. It will give you a life of liberation free from sin and the pain and the sorrow that comes along with it. So I find this very beautiful uh, here, distinctive uh, order in the sense that their deliverance came first. They heard nothing of the law until after they were already delivered. And here, now they are at the base of Sinai and God is about to give to them the actual law. And here at the base of Sinai is where they will receive the law. They'll receive the sacrificial system. It's here that they'll hear from God instruction of how to build the tabernacle uh, for, to use for their worship practices. God will institute things like you know, the worship system of the sacrificial system and the priesthood. So all these beautiful, incredible things that become marks of, of God's people, the special chosen nation of Israel. They experience and receive all these things at Sinai. And as they're there at Sinai, there's something very beautiful and personal happening as well with Moses because God at this point is fulfilling to Moses a promise that he made to him in a very personal way back in Exodus chapter 3. Because in Exodus chapter 3, I believe it's verse 12 there, at Mount Horeb, God says to Moses as he's getting ready to take the commission from God and he's hearing God's calling, God says to him, Exodus uh, 3, he says to him, Moses, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, 
as they're there at Mount Sinai and Moses on behalf of the people is going back and forth and communicating with God as a mediator, he is at the exact same mountain that he started at when he saw the burning bush. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai are two different names for the exact same territory. And God had told Moses prior to when he ever went to Egypt as the deliverer and embraced God's call, where he saw the burning bush, he had said to him, Moses, this is one of the ways that I will authenticate to you and demonstrate to you that I have called you to do this, is Moses, there will come a time where after you deliver them out, you will find yourself back at this exact same mountain once again. And there you will serve me upon that mountain. And here God now is bringing this to completion, bringing it around full circle. And again, just demonstrating that it does not matter what happens in between. If God gives us his word about something, God gives us his promise about something, there may be difficulties, delays, hardships, and challenges in the process, but God will ultimately bring his promise to pass. And the Lord will bring us to the place where he tells us that he will and will do for us the things that he says that he will accomplish and fulfill. The time Moses received that at the burning bush, would you agree? We've been studying Exodus together. There's been some challenges along the way. It hasn't been easy. There's been a number of obstacles and what almost felt like setbacks and times when no doubt Moses even questioned, man, God, I thought you sent me. God, I thought you said you were going to work. It looked like, Lord, it looked like it was going forward. And now it seems like we just went back seven steps and the people don't even believe me now. And, and there were plenty of occasions where there were difficulties and challenges. But as Moses kept walking through the thing in faith, here he finds himself now experiencing God's promise because he's back at the same mountain where he had that experience with God himself in a personal way. And he knew that he knew that he encountered God. And now here he is back at that same spot and it's here with the congregation camped all around at the base of Sinai that he is now going to begin to receive instruction from God to get the people ready for them to receive the law of God for their lives. Verse 3 says, And Moses went up to God and the Lord called him or to him from the mountain. Now notice, Moses went up to God. Now, Moses is, is somewhere... 80 years old or beyond at this point, and one of two things, uh, either Moses was, he was into cardio, uh, and he was in pretty good shape, maybe he was a, you know, ancient CrossFit guy or something, whatever the people are doing nowadays, you know, and he was in really good shape, or God just supernaturally strengthened him in his mortal frame, because he goes up and down this mountain a few times in this chapter. God will say, come up, and go back down, come up, go back down, come up, go back down. And, you know, and, and, and Moses responsively, you know, ministry is not convenient. Serving the Lord's not convenient. Going to spend time with the Lord's not convenient. Sometimes I, I feel like the Lord's saying to me in bed, get up. You know, and, I, and I lay back down. He says, no, get up. And I lay back down. Hit snooze again. Get up. You know, and, and, and to encounter God and sometimes to give our time and attention to God, it, it's a challenge sometimes. And here Moses, this is an 80-plus-year-old guy, and he's up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain. So here he goes. He goes up to God. And the Lord called to him and spoke, saying to him, verse 3, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. Interesting, God uses both terms to describe his people. He calls them the house of Jacob and he also calls them the children of Israel. You know, that was, remember, Jacob, the patriarch, 
who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, those were two terms for who Jacob was. Uh, Jacob meant conniver, and that represented his old life when he was living, you know, kind of like a conniver, and he was striving after the flesh, and he was always trying to manipulate and take things into his own control and do things in his own efforts. And ultimately, you remember what the Lord had to do? God had to had to break him, and the Lord had to just break that spirit within him and take away from him that that conniving personality that always just knew how to work the system and get what he wanted and make it happen his way and God had to break that when God broke him remember he renamed him Israel which means prince or literally governed by God in other words now you are under the rulership of God you're not ruling yourself now God's ruling over you and God brought a change in his temperament and here, interesting that God uses both terms to describe his people. And in some senses, I wonder if there's something, uh, you know, in a sense, a, a reminder to us that as God looks upon our lives, he, he realizes, you know, there's a little bit of a blend of both in us still. You know, there, there's our old nature and that old man that's there. The, the, in a sense, that old Jacob temperament that, that, that's kind of represented a little more of our fleshly temperament. And yet then God says, but by the same token, I've saved you and you're new in Christ now and, and you're, you're a child of God. And the Bible tells us that we have to walk in the spirit so we don't gratify the lusts of the flesh. And God sees that we have the potential for both. And he recognized that in his graciousness, his desire for us is to live and to walk in the spirit and to serve him like a child of God. But he realizes that there's still that wrestling within us, the, the existence of, of the sinful flesh and yet the spirit of God having made us new in Christ and that new position we have. And I just find it interesting that here God chooses to say, tell my people the house of Jacob, but he also calls them the same people, the children of Israel. And he says, tell them, verse four, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So the first thing Moses is told to do is to remind God's people of what God had already done for them. Before he tells them to do anything, he says, first, make sure you refresh them with what I've accomplished in their lives. God always would have us to first prioritize what he's done in our lives before anything there is that we're to do in response to him. It is essential to become rooted in understanding what God has already done for you. It's the New Testament pattern. You read the epistles, you know, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. It's all about what God has done for us. It's all about who we are in Christ and our position. And, and you read Colossians, it's the same thing. You read Romans, it's 11 chapters of everything God's done for us. And then after understanding what God's done for us and who we are in Christ, then the Bible says, therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God, offer your body as a living sacrifice, you know, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is that good, pleasing, and perfect will. Or, or Paul says in Ephesians for one, therefore, you know, walk worthy of the calling you've received. But he doesn't say that until chapter 4, verse 1. And God would always have us be acquainted with what he's done for us to remember what the Lord has accomplished on our behalf, to realize his power that's worked in our lives and that he's initiated the whole process. So God says, look, Moses, before, and he's going to say some, some challenging things to them, but he says, first, Moses, 
refresh them, remind them and refresh their memory with the understanding of what I did for them, how they remember that they saw what he says, I did to the Egyptians for you. Who are the Egyptians? Who are their enemies? And God says, remind them. I destroyed their enemies for them. Remind them that I came to them and delivered them from their enemies. Remind them that I came to them and found them in slavery and bondage. And that I took the initiative to get them out of that. And that I, by my strong hand and outstretched arm, was the one who set them free and, and, and took care of their enemies for them, just like God does for us. He delivers us out of the world and he takes care of the enemies in our lives and, and sets us free and lets us be liberated from maybe what was once controlling us. And he says, remind them how I, he says, bore you on eagles' wings. Again, just this beautiful picture. We see this a few times in the Old Testament, how God you know, bears us on eagles' wings. Just a picture of how you know, the parental figure among the eagle, the, the mother eagle with an eaglet, and how you know, there are these different you know, analogies that can be drawn from that, how the eagle's nest is typically you know, built way high up on, on a very high elevation and how uh, they would build the nest there where typically there would be a warm updraft and, and ultimately to be able to teach that eagle how to fly uh, as it would launch out of the nest as it's learning as a little eaglet that, that the mother eagle typically will fly. And, and you know, the story is always told in this sense, and I've did a little research, it's not totally 100% accurate, that the mother kind of pushes the eagle out of the nest and then lets a thing, you know, it's, you know, flapping, ah, you know, the thing's falling all the way down and right before the thing splats down on the earth that the mother swoops in and catches it on its back and, and that sounds really poetic, that's not really very accurate. Uh, it sounds fun, I think we like it because we kind of feel like that's kind of like what does happen to us sometimes, we kind of feel like God like pushes us out of the nest and pushes us out of our comfort zone and and once he pushes us out of our comfort zone way before we're ready for it and we don't really want to be pushed out of our comfort zone and then we're going ah! you know and then at the last minute the lord swoops in and saves us right before we splat and the whole thing kind of falls apart and and that that sounds interesting but that's really not what happened the mother eagle actually certainly encourages the eagle to fly but actually flies directly underneath, doesn't actually catch the eaglet, but flaps the wings underneath in a sense to one set an example of the eaglet how to fly, to teach it how to do it, and at the same time also creates in a sense what's called drafting. You never you know see how they do that, you know, birds create drafting for other birds, and the idea is is to make it easier for the eagle. You know, th that eaglet knows how to fly. It's it's wired in its DNA, it knows how to do it. And what the mother bird, in a sense, does is just encourage and initiate to bring out of that eagle what's already there and to do whatever it can to make it as easy as possible to minimize the draft, to minimize the drag, and to be there in companionship and support. You know, a mother eagle is extremely, extremely protective. A mother eagle is very responsive in regards to, if you've ever seen you know, any bird, you know, they go out and they get provision, they bring it back to the nest. And this is what God is saying. God's saying, these are the type of things that I've done for you. Yes, God says, I've taken you out of the nest. I put you out in the middle of the wilderness. But God said, if anybody tried to come after you there, what happened when Pharaoh's army tried to come after him? 
like a mother eagle, God swooped right in and he dealt pretty severely with the Egyptians. God said, look, I, they tried to get in the nest and I didn't allow that to happen. Not one ounce. I swooped right in to protect you. And so many times we've seen already occasions where as they're journeying through the wilderness and, and going through in the midst of the journey, God's intervening and creating what? The, the glory cloud by day and the fire by night. And what's he doing? He was making it easier for his people. So many times the Lord in just this gracious way is doing what he can in our lives to buffer life. And, and we're thinking, oh, life's so hard. <laughs> if we had any idea... I think sometimes, uh, of even when it is hard, how much resistance God in his love is probably putting into our life by his grace and he's minimizing how bad it could be and he's minimizing the draft and he's making it as easy as possibly can. I'm not diminishing that sometimes life isn't challenging, but, but God in his graciousness, he comes alongside and, and he's there with us and he doesn't leave us alone and his presence is with us and his help is there to assist us. And again, just this kind of beautiful, poetic, picturesque way as God's speaking to his people that he's with them, that he hasn't abandoned them, his protection, his support. And God says, I did all this. Notice verse 4, he says, I brought you to myself. I have that underlined. I think that's so beautiful. God says, I brought you to myself. Uh, to me, that is just so encouraging to know that, that that is the heart and nature of God. God wants to bring people to himself. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And it's my Father's will that you go and bear fruit. And to know that... Did we come to Christ? Yes. But the reason we came to Christ was because Christ was pursuing us and Christ was initiating. The Bible says that we come to God through him. And listen, in the same way God brought you to himself, guess what? The people that you want to see come to God, God can bring them to himself. And God's reminding them the basis of their relationship is his great love. It's his faithfulness. God says, I, you know, I, I am the one, he says, that dealt with your enemies, delivered you from Egypt, kept you through that. And he said, and I'm the one that brought you to myself. That's the kind of God that we serve, a God who brings people to himself in the ways in which he works. Verse five, he then says to them, now therefore, in other words, in light of what I've already done for you so much, of my love and power and help. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, which we would think that we should want to, right? They would want to. If you will indeed obey my voice, almost sounds like why would that be an if, but God knows our nature. He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words, God says to Moses, which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So again here, we have this reaffirmation. We've seen it multiple times already from Genesis chapter 12 and we'll continue to see it continuously throughout the Old Testament, this this reaffirmation of God making it very clear that the nation of Israel are his chosen people, that they're a special people, a select people that by his sovereign grace he has set apart, that he's made a covenant with, 
a people who are a special treasure to him, the apple of his eye, the Bible says, his eye is always upon them, a people who he has given a special covenant relationship to. And here God begins to speak of that very thing to them again. He says, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. In other words, God says, every nation is mine. Listen, is there something per se that is special about the people of Israel, that they're better than others or they're, they're more well-behaved than others? Well, of course not. Do you want to know why they're special? For one reason, because God made them special. That's God's prerogative. God put his grace upon them. God has sovereignly selected them. Every nation on the earth belongs to God, and God loves every nation. But we can never diminish the evident clear declaration throughout the word of God that the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, are God's chosen people. And that hasn't changed. And the church has not replaced them. And God is going to keep his covenant promises to the nation of Israel. Romans 9 through 11 is all about that from a New Testament perspective, reminding us as Christians that we should never be arrogant and that we should never become anti-Semitic. But that we should realize, listen, we're, we've been grafted into them. If God won't keep his promises to the nation of Israel, then why would God keep his promises to the church? The, the, the truth of the matter is, they're, they're the source, they're the vine. We're just wild olive branches that were grafted in. Our, our faith has a Jewish root to it. Our Messiah is Jewish. We serve a, a, a God of Israel. And, and here God is just, again, reaffirming to Moses as he's about to give them the law and, and further aspects of the covenant uh, that they indeed are a special treasure, he says, above all people. And you shall be, God says to them, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were a nation set apart to be representative of God. God set them apart with the purpose of being like a priest. A priest was an intermediary. That's what a priest did. A priest represented God to people and he represented the people before God. And that's what the nation of Israel was to do. They were to represent God to the other nations. They were to live uniquely and distinctively in a way whereby God might reveal himself to the other nations as the one true and living God through their lives. They were to be witnesses of God to the other nations, to the Gentile nations. Now, have they always done that perfectly? Certainly not. There were times throughout history when they were a great witness for God. There are many times when they were. But just like you and I, yes, they've also, they've also failed in that, but God hasn't done away with them because of it. Certainly there's a blindness now in part the Bible speaks of that's there while there's a fullness of the Gentiles coming in and the Gospels come to you and I. But this was their calling. God says that they were to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and, and were to be unique to represent God among the Gentile nations. Now what's beautiful is this, is that though the church has not replaced Israel, that we've been grafted in, the Bible says, like a, a wild olive branch. If you remember in our study in Peter, Peter actually picks up on this idea and says that you and I as Christians, in a sense, have also a unique and a special relationship in Jesus Christ with God as well. Let me read you 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Peter says this to Christians. He says, you are also a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God and have not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. 
So the Bible says spiritually, we have in a sense a similar calling that God gave to the congregation of Israel as the congregation of God's people in Jesus Christ. That in the same way, we are in a sense to have a spiritual priestly ministry whereby we bring people to God through intercessory prayer and ministry and where we also represent God to people by sharing his word and by being representatives and witnesses to the world around us that's unsaved. Peter says, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. That's our, that's our role in much the same way. And God has a special purpose and plan for the church as well. And, and what, just what wonderful things to think about that we, just like Israel, are like a special treasure to God. You, know, you, you may be here tonight and, and you struggle with you know, self-confidence, self-image, whatever. Maybe you've been through things, people have said things to you, and you think you have no worth. And, and in a negative, caustic, unhealthy way, you feel you have no value. Listen, you're denying the word of God. God says you are a special treasure to me. God says you have value that supersedes anything that you can imagine. And it doesn't matter who you are. And that value is for one reason. Because God says you're valuable. You're valuable to God. Your worth is not what you provide. Listen, there's nobody in this, on this earth. The Bible says there's none worthy. No, not one. There's nobody worthy. But you have worth. And your worth is because of who you are in Jesus Christ. And your worth is because God has put worth upon you as a father who's loving, who says to me, you have great value. You're a treasure to me, a special treasure. And to be able to have that identity, man, it's not self-confidence, but it's a sense of spiritual confidence to know that I have value to God because God has declared that about our life. There's tremendous comfort in that reality. Verse seven, it says, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And, and all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, how, how serious do you think they were about that? I mean, I think there was incredible, honestly, incredible well-intended desire there. I think they were very well intended as they heard God begin to declare some of his words. Hey, Moses, please tell the Lord whatever he has said, we will do. Whatever he said, whatever he has said, we want to comply. Well intended, but of course we know, because we've read the rest of the story, many of us, they didn't quite practice what they professed as accurately as what they said. Very shortly at the same location they're at now where they receive God's law and they experience God's power and his majesty and they hear God's voice and they say, whatever God has said, we will do. In the very same spot, not too long after this, they'll be making a golden calf and dancing around naked and drunk and worshiping other things. And all of a sudden, it's amazing how their profession doesn't match up with their practice. And that can be a challenge for all of us. I think they're well-intended, but they didn't quite live out exactly what they intended to do. They were a little bit overconfident. Sometimes that can be our challenge spiritually too. We hear the word of God, we read the word of God, and like Peter, good intention. You know, just reading my devotions, reader, Peter says, Lord, even if everybody's made to deny you, I'll never deny you. Lord, if I have to die with you, I'll, you know, I'll go to the death with you. And, and Jesus understood, Peter, I, 
I appreciate your zeal. But Peter, let me tell you the truth about yourself. Before the night's over, Peter, in less than 20, you're going to die with me? In less than 24 hours, you're going to deny that you even know me. Three times. Multiple times. Peter would be sleeping during the prayer meeting within a matter of hours. He wouldn't even be able to stay up for the prayer meeting. And he's going to die with Jesus? He couldn't even stay awake during a prayer meeting. Well intended. I think Peter had it. I think he was totally well intended. I think we're well intended. It's in all that that Jesus says the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. But that's why we have to watch and pray. Because apart from the supernatural enablement of God, we're not in self-resolve going to do whatever God tells us. In self-resolve, we're never going to just, hey, whatever the Lord has said, I'm going to do God's will. I'm going to follow God's word. Well, if not apart from the power of God, we're, we're going to struggle. And what God is concerned about, listen, it, it's not that we, what we say that matters. It's what we do that matters. God's not interested in the declarations we can make. God's interested in seeing how we actually live out our lives. God's not impressed with words. God is impressed with obedience and walking things out. This reminded me of Matthew 21, one of the stories that Jesus taught. Let me just read it to you briefly because I think it's a reminder of this, how God's not so much concerned of what we say as much as he is what we actually do. Matthew 21 tells us this. Jesus said, but what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. And he came to the second son, and he said, likewise. And he said, I go, sir. But he didn't go. And Jesus said, which one? Which one of those two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. So Jesus says, two sons. First son, the father comes to him, and he says, look, this is what my will. I want you to go work in my field. And he says, I'm not doing that. He doesn't have the best attitude at first. And what he says, but afterwards in his heart, there was conviction and repentance. And he says, but you know what? I need to submit to my father's will. The second one, when he was asked to do the same thing, he made a great profession. He probably sounded way more spiritual when it was said out loud in front of everybody else. I'll go, father, whatever you want, father. Yes, father. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Yes, sir. But then he never went and did it. He spoke well. He sounded good, but he never lived it out. And Jesus said, which one did the will of his father? The one that bragged and sounded spiritual, but lived disobediently? Or the one who, you know what, may not have been too impressive, but he lived a life of obedience. And he actually did the right thing. And Jesus said it was the one that did the right thing. Reminding us that that's, that's what God's concerned about. Listen, we, we can all talk a great talk. What God wants us is to have humility and to be obedient in what we do. And we don't need to profess what we're going to do. We just need to do it. We just need to live it out and let our life be that example. Jesus said, if you love me, he didn't say, tell me. He said, if you love me, what? What did he say? Obey me, right. If you love me, just obey me. Obey me. Keep my commandments. You don't have to tell me. Just keep my commandments. That will tell me that you love me, Jesus, in essence, was saying. So they very confidently, we know that they struggle, but with great zeal, all the Lord has said we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you 
and believe you forever. So part of what God was going to do here, he says, Moses, I'm also going to authenticate that you indeed are my messenger, that my hand is upon your leadership, he says, because I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud, in a sense, in this awesome way, the presence of God will overwhelm them when he manifests himself. And he says, I'm going to do it in a way that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you, that they'll believe that you indeed do have the word of the Lord and that I have spoken to you. And he's going to, sense, validate Moses' leadership a little bit, which was healthy because, remember, that was some of the challenge the congregation was having. They were always questioning Moses' decisions or directions at times. So God's going to sort of authenticate that. So Moses, it says, verse 9, told the words of the Lord, or excuse me, told the words of the people to the Lord. So he relays back the message now that the people say, hey, Lord, the people said whatever you say, <laughs> that they're going to do it. They are, they're, on, they're on with this. They're going to do whatever you say. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people. Back down the mountain, Moses. Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. So now there's this process God's going to begin to do where he causes the people to become prepared to be in his presence, to become prepared to meet with him and to hear his voice. And notice, he says, Moses, the people need to become consecrated. The idea is they need to be set apart. They need to set themselves apart and consecrate themselves. And he says, today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Now, of course, they literally would wash their clothes. And keep in mind, in that ancient culture, uh, that was a much bigger deal than it was for us today. I mean, we have the what do we have? Tide detergent or whatever you call it. You know, that's who does the wash in the house. That's pretty embarrassing. I do iron my own clothes, though, uh, for Sunday morning. So uh, the shirt, anyway. Let me, let me, let me keep, my, keep, keep, it, keep it honest here. Keep it honest. Once a week, one shirt. <laughs> you know, today we wash our clothes real easy. We get baths. We have access to water and soap. And for us to get washed, that's not a big deal. In that ancient culture, they weren't getting baths every day. Unless you were extremely wealthy, you didn't even have more than one set of garments that you wore. So when you washed yourself, when you took a bath or you cleansed your clothes, that was a big deal. When you see these occasions in the Bible where it says the people, tell the people to wash themselves, to cleanse it, that was a, it was a big event for them to do that. And in a sense here, certainly there's a symbolic aspect. There was a ritual cleansing. Of course, these things get implemented in the law later. But God's in essence saying, listen, tell the people they need to cleanse the filth from themselves personally to be in my presence. I'm a holy God. They're about to be in my presence. And God, in a sense, look, they need to remove the filth from themselves. They need to come to me clean approach me in a sense and again uh, why because God's trying to put this perspective in their minds that they shouldn't come to God in this very casual way that they should have a reverence for the holiness of God and realize he is who he is and in the same way listen if you got an opportunity you got an opportunity to go see a, a prime minister or, or a king or something I guarantee you what are you going to do you're going to get all cleaned up and probably get the new haircut and you're going to have your, you know, spout, you're going to go through seven different outfits. Which one? This one, this one, this look, that look. And why? Because there's a sense of, hey, I'm going in front of someone important. And look, if we do that kind of stuff humanly, God's saying, listen, when you approach me in my presence, 
We shouldn't be coming before the Lord with, with filth in our lives. There should be a sense at times of that when we recognize those things that we want to come before the Lord's presence prepared. And this is the idea here, is this is sort of being described here. It's certainly it's symbolic, but God's trying to convey something to their hearts, to cleanse themselves, to consecrate themselves, get ready. He says, let them, verse 11, be ready. Notice, we should get ready when we're going to come into the presence of the Lord. I think when we're driving to church to come worship, it's a good thing. Even before we walk through the door, Lord, just prepare me. You know, cleanse my heart, cleanse my mind, Lord, the things I've done today, thought, just help me to be ready. I want to be ready. I want to be a clean, prepared, yielded vessel to experience you, to hear your voice. Let them get ready for the third day. The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So God was going to manifest his presence in a real powerful and a very personal way like never before. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So very severe consequences if they pressed forward with too much casualty rather than a sense of reverence. Not a hand shall touch him, God says. That is if somebody breaks through and rushes forward like they shouldn't. But he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near to the mountain. And, and again, as I said, what God is very simply doing here is beginning to cultivate in the people a sense of reverence. A sense of reverence for his holiness, for his presence. I mean, by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, we can come boldly, the Bible says now, to a throne of grace. We can enter right into the Holy of Holies. But that was not the case in the Old Testament, if you remember. Only once a year, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was, and that with the blood of an innocent substitute. And that was the only way that he could approach. There was that huge veil, remember, ultimately God will tell them to create, which in a sense calls them to remember, listen, there is a barrier, there is a separation between finite sinful man and holy infinite God Jesus has taken away that veil but even in Christ though the veil has been taken away we need to be careful that, that we don't begin to lack reverence and the fear of God and realize the, the, the importance and the presence and the purity of who God is and, and here God was kind of trying to put that into their minds that they weren't to be brazen and to rush forward they were to represent in a sense realize the representation of God's holy presence so Moses who says verse 14 here he is again went down from the mountain to the people and he sanctified the people and washed their clothes so I guess Moses did laundry too a little laundromat there. Sorry. Wash their clothes. Sorry, I just read into that. And he said to the people, be ready the third day and do not come near your wives. So as a part of the process, they were to as well. Like when you would fast and abstain for a time to focus upon other things, God calls them for those three days to abstain before this situation where they would experience God's presence. But I like how verse 14 reads, Moses sanctified the people. He prepared the people to meet and encounter God. And I can't help, again, as Moses so often is a type, a figure of Jesus Christ, to think of how isn't that as exactly, truly what the Lord Jesus does for us? It is Jesus who sanctifies us so that we can encounter God. 
If Jesus did not sanctify us by his blood and make us acceptable in the beloved and prepare us, we would have no access to the presence of God. We would not be able to go into God's presence. It's only because Jesus has sanctified us by his blood and washed us and he's prepared us and washed, in a sense, our garments in his blood. Romans 1 says that he has washed us from our sins in his own blood. He's washed us. Even as Moses here sanctified and helped prepare them for God's presence, Christ, in a fuller sense, has done that for all of us. And it came to pass that they, it says, in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings. And this was supernatural. This wasn't a volcanic mountainous area they were in. This was supernatural. Thunderings and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so the people who were in the camp trembled. This was a, a terrifying experience. It was overwhelming. And Moses, verse 17, I like this again, the language, brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Again, Moses, it's almost like Moses, like a parent here. He's leading them out. They're, they're kind of intimidated, overwhelmed children. There's thunder and lightning and the presence of God. Everybody is trembling. They are in awe of the presence of God. You know, there's no chum chumminess here. I think one of the things that's tragic to me is sometimes, though we understand God's grace and the accessibility we have to approach God, when sometimes we begin to get a, you know, a, a little too casual with God. I'm going to talk to the big man upstairs. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Do you know what you're talking about? There was these people here were overwhelmed at the manifestation of the presence of God. When we read the Bible, did you ever take notice whenever anybody has a genuine encounter, you know, a revelation of God, you know, Daniel or Moses or whatever, do you find them in any other way other than typically like on their face overwhelmed by the presence of God? God who dwells, the Bible says, in inapproachable light. Praise God that we have the personal access to God that we do through the person of Jesus Christ. But God, help our hearts to never, ever begin to become irreverent in the house of God. To become irreverent in our approach to God, in our relationship with God. But that we would realize it's only because, just like Moses here graciously brought the people to meet with God because of the relationship he had already had with God... That's exactly how we come to God is Jesus. Jesus brings us to God and lets us meet with God. And we meet with God through the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And praise God that he has sent his son to make that available to us by faith. That we can boldly approach his throne of grace through the person of his son Jesus. So Moses now, it's almost like, again, like a fatherly figure. He's bringing the people out of the camp saying, come on, don't be afraid. It's okay, it's okay. And he's, he's kind of coaching them along. Verse 18 says, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. Must have been an overwhelming sight. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So you got thunder and lightning and fire, and the mountain is shaking. I mean, this must have been an incredible, incredible, overwhelming experience. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, 
And again, these are astonishing statements. And God answered him by a voice. One man. In the midst of all that, he speaks to God. And God answered. God answered by a voice. God talked to Moses. And you know what? Man, how wonderful to know that when we speak to God, that God answers. I mean, just the fact that we do have access to God and that God speaks to us. And he wants to speak to us. He wants us to hear his voice. His, even if it's a still small voice or his very powerful voice, however he speaks to us, the fact that we can hear God's voice. And you know what? In Christ, that's promised us. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. It's a pretty awesome thing to think about that you can hear the voice of the creator of the universe. That he answers you. That he wants to answer you. That he wants you to hear his voice. Moses, one man, speaks to God and God answered him by a voice and the Lord came down upon the mountain on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. So he's back up again and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down, you poor guy, come up, go down, go down, he says, Moses, warn the people lest they break through and gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Now, again, we have this first reference here in a sense to priests. And we know the priesthood officially hasn't been established yet. We'll see that in chapters ahead. But it seems that there was some reference here that God was making to those who maybe in an unofficial sense were functioning in that capacity initially, just like we saw a reference to the Sabbath not too long ago, which hasn't been instituted officially yet according to the law what this means i'm not 100 percent certain but god references here the priests maybe it was the idea of again the fatherly figure many times in the family the the father or the eldest son was like a spiritual priest to the family they were the spiritual leader uh in their family so it could be a reference to kind of the heads of the families but notice god says moses you have to warn the people again see god knows our nature God knows that we have an incredible curiosity. God says, tell them not to push through, to keep a distance. And God says, but warn the people again because I don't want them. I don't want them to rebel. I don't want them to experience the consequence of what will happen if they break through and push past the boundary. He knows that we're prone to rebel. I'm so thankful that God knows that our hearts, just because whether it's curiosity, again, you know, we're just have such a propensity. You see a wet paint sign, what do you do? <laughs> wet paint, do not touch. Oh, now I didn't want to touch that till you told me that. And see, God knows. God says, tell the people, don't do this. But he says, you better warn them because their nature is they're going to they're gonna want to rebel. They're going to want to say, well, Mom, let me just see. And God says, I don't want them. Again, God's love for us. He doesn't want us to be harmed. He doesn't want us to experience consequences. So warn them again. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. It's almost like he argues with God here. For you warned us, saying set bounds around the mountain. God, you already warned us. Why do I got to go tell them again? If I warn them again, they're going to, they're going to, you already told us that, Moses. Oh God, I don't want to go tell them the same thing again. They're going to get irritated, think that I don't trust them. Tell them the same thing again. And he says, almost the Lord gets a little firm with them. He says, Moses, away. Get down and then come up 
And you and Aaron, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he spoke to them. The idea is he warned them again, like God told them to. So, see, God, knowing the nature of humanity, says to Moses, listen, contrary to what you think, I realize they need to be reminded again. They need to be warned again. And it's for their own benefit that they're warned and reminded again. And so often for our lives, you know, I think God uses us in each other's lives in communication. I think God uses the, the teaching of his word in communication. Like Paul said, you know, him we preach, admonishing and, and, and teaching every man and warning every man because we need that continuously in our lives to be warned of the realities of our own sin or our own rebellion. Because God knows that we're prone to at times push beyond the boundaries that he sets for us in our life. And here Moses, in a sense, is being asked by the Lord to help restrain the people from failure. God doesn't want them to fail. It's not the heart of God that they would fail here. So he's saying, Moses, go down and do whatever you can to help restrain them from failure. And the wonderful thing is this. Just like Moses does that, Jesus, the Bible says, does the same thing for us. Because the book of Jude gives us a wonderful promise that says regarding Jesus that he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his glorious throne with great joy. Yes, does God want us to keep ourselves in a right place of obedience spiritually? Absolutely. Should we seek to obey and respond to the Lord and be submissive? Most certainly. But how wonderful to know that Jesus as well is wanting to help, willing to help, and able to help, it says, to even keep us from stumbling. That the Lord wants to keep us from failing. He wants to keep us from stumbling spiritually and then to present us faultless. Now, I don't know about you. I read that, present me faultless before his throne. I scratch and go, what? But see, because of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, and because we don't live under the law, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It does not matter how many times you have stumbled or how many times you might stumble. And even when the Lord's trying to keep you from stumbling, that you're so stubborn that you push past and you trip yourself up, that if your faith is in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished death and resurrection and shed blood upon Calvary's cross, that there is coming a day when Jesus can present you before the throne of God, covered in his blood and robed in his righteousness, and present you faultless before the throne of God. And it says he do, he's going to do it with great joy. With great joy. Man, that is an encouraging concept to consider.